Good morning, everyone. Again, if you have your Bible, please turn to Isaiah chapter 61 as we continue to take the journey, the mercy journey. Uh, today, we're visiting a text from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 61. If you don't know where it is in your heart Bible, almost in the middle of the Bible, a little bit over, then you'll get to Isaiah. Or you can turn on your phone app or on your um, web browser. Isaiah chapter 61 Verse 1 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, every week when we come before you and as we hear from you, from your word, Lord, what precious opportunity that we have. God, I was reminded how your word, you said, is sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. So, Lord, prepare our hearts, soften our hearts to receive from you. And God, be with me as I preach, as I proclaim your word. Open my minds, open my mind and my mouth to proclaim only the word that is of you. And God, I pray for every person who's listening to your word. Give them faith to believe in it and give them perseverance to obey it. Help us today, God, to not just be hearer of your words, but be doer of your words. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. As many of you know, we've been on this journey called a mercy journey in this sermon series. And we've been traveled from how God has shown mercy in our hearts and then continue to move on to uh, God's showing mercy in our home. And it's very interesting. Last week in our home group, we were talking about how, how difficult it is sometimes to share mercy, to show mercy in a family because those who are so close to us. And today we're going to continue that journey to talk about mercy to the church, in the church, the mercy that we ought to show as the church, the body of Christ. I want to begin and share with you a, a, a old device for many of you. It is a red and white Nintendo. That was sort of the first gaming system that I've had when I was growing up in Hong Kong. And I still remember you need these gigantic cart- cartridge to play. And then when it doesn't work, you need to shake it, you know, blow, blow at it. There's dust and then you just shove it in. And then to take it off is almost like taking off uh, things from a car. You know, pop the hood and just crank it out. And um, my kids uh, recently got a chance to play with an older system. There's these retro uh, game ca- console and um, Target. And they were playing this old game at my brother-in-law's house. And they were just complaining how pixelated these these uh, these uh, games were, how slow they were. All you can do is just forward, backward, up and down. Uh, these games are pretty lame, and that's all only because most of these games were made in a very very early stages, and they were made in this two two dimensional view. My kids nowadays have, as many of you have, a Nintendo Switch, and uh, they they love to play this game, 2K20, uh, NBA basketball. And several times when my parents came to visit us 
in L.A., uh, they were they walked in and thinking that they were actually watching a real NBA game, and they were wondering how come their games on is on Saturday morning. But lo and behold, actually, my kids playing the video game, they were so real on the screen that there are three dimensional, uh, three dimension to the to the game, and 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 it looks so real to them. I remember uh, about a couple about a year ago when I was at a uh, uh, NFL team practice, and they were trying to sell season ticket. And so they have these virtual reality uh, um, um, things that you can put on and you get to see and, and obviously the stadium is not built yet and you can see literal walk around as if you are at the stadium that is unbuilt. That you can touch, you can walk around the field and the seats that you might want to purchase for the season. You know, in many ways, our Christian life is the same way. Many of us tend to live in that 2D, very bland type of Christian life. But the scripture tells us that there are actually more than just two dimension to our Christian walk. Many times when we think of our Christian walk, we're thinking that we need to be loving God, which is the vertical direction of our uh, vir- vertical dimension of our Christian life. That I need to love God. Yes, me and God, Bible reading, scripture reading, and prayer. But also, we also know that there's a horizontal, a second, a two, a second dimension to that relationship with God is that we ought to love one another. That we need to love one another. We need to go, uh, be a part of the church. We need to go to small group. We need to grow and serve one another. But what I realize, and many times my observation is that we forget that there is actually a third dimension to our Christian life. And that is not just vertical, horizontal, but it's external. That our Christian life are consistent all three of these dimensions. There is a, a component of our Christian life that call us to go out. To go outward into the world. That not only do we love God, love Jesus, love one another. But we also need to love the world who is around us and bless the world around us. And I, I think of this this way that many times we tend to live in a very 2D dimension of two-dimensional uh, Christian life. That we, that's one reason why I think many of us feel very lethargic. We feel very uh, purposeless type of Christian life. But what we forget and what we don't realize is that there is a third component that God had made us to live to, to live for. That ultimately will bring true excitement, true joy to us. That as we live in this three-dimensional, like just like playing a three-dimensional game, is so much more exciting and purposeful and dynamic. So is the way that we live this three-dimensional life. So as we talk about this journey, mercy journey, we're talking about today how we as a church ought to live out our Christian life externally. How do we show mercy to the world? How can we be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world? That we're living not just vertically, horizontally, but we're living externally to the world around us. And the passage that we look at, that we're looking at today is from Isaiah 61. It is one of my favorite passages, a very special passage to me, and especially in relationship to many of you in this church. When I first got called by God to come to this church, in every place that I've served at before, I always pray and ask, give me a mission. Give me, give me a passage that, that, that is from you. That I know that is not me trying to get a job, me trying to do ministry, but that is your calling for me in this place. And Isaiah chapter 61 is that passage. And uh, you probably can't see it in my Bible. I actually wrote FCBC SGV here in 2012. This is the passage that as I pray, God said, this is what I want to see happen. 
through this church. And in fact, this is a passage that I pray for you and pray for me and pray for our church every single week that will continue to grow and to be the fulfillment of this passage. But not only this passage is special to me, this is actually a very special passage to Jesus because this was the first announcements of his ministry on earth that he actually quoted this passage in Luke chapter 4, as we will see later. That Jesus quoted this message in saying that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah to the world. And it is to this passage that we see this external call that we have as both individual Christians, but also as the body of Jesus Christ representing him here on earth. I want to share with us three things today from this passage that that we must do to, to live out this external call. Three elements of this external call. The first one is this. The first element of this external call has to do with us reaching the world. That we must reach, we must take the initiative to do that. That the burden is on us to go and reach, not for the lost, those who are far away, to come and find us. That you and I are actually called and saved for this very purpose here on earth. Let's go to, the, uh, go to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. When Jesus quoted this in Luke chapter 4, he is making a reference, telling those who are in, in the attendance of his teaching, that God the Father, Yahweh, has anointed him to do the several, the following tasks from 2 to 4. And in the same way, not only Jesus are being anointed, that we as the church of Jesus are also anointed to do these tasks. The picture of anointing is, is one in the Old Testament where um, the, those who are in authority of God will pour oil almost affirming and blessing the calling that, that the blessing is required to fulfill the calling that is upon this person. And Jesus said, when I, come on, when I came on earth, this is what God the Father has affirmed and blessed me to do this task. And the same is true for you and I as a church. We know though, those very famous verses in Matthew 28, that we are called to go and make disciples of all nations. That we're to go and reach. And the original language, most people understand it as not just a command to go, but the idea that as you are going, makes disciples. There is an assumption that we must go and reach. It is an active, intentional uh, uh, step for us to do. We see in John chapter 20, as if that verse is not, uh, Matthew 20 is not clear enough. John 20, 21, Jesus specifically said, as the Father has sent me, so sent I you to church the believer, the followers of Jesus. In Acts 1.8, as the early church started to, to live out the calling that they have, Jesus gave his final words to his disciples and interestingly enough, tied in perfectly parallel to Isaiah 61.1 here, that the Spirit of God, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you'll be what? The witnesses to the ends of the earth. The Spirit comes so that you can be witness to the world. And guess what it says? The Spirit of God in Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of God has come upon Jesus, comes upon the church. Why? So that we can live externally to reach those who are far away from God. Unfortunately, though, many of us don't think that this external call belongs to us. We tend to think that this external call belongs to the, to the brave, the proud, the few. 
the leaders are mature. But yet when, when we look at scripture, when you're saved by grace through faith, Jesus did not only save you from your sin, but he also saved you for this very purpose. That is only reserved, not only reserved to a few people to go reach, but that all of us are called to reach. Let me give you a test to see whether you actually think that is part of your call. Many of us live in that 2D world, Christian life, but we're not realizing that there's a, this third component. Let me ask you this question. Last time when someone asked you, how are you doing spiritually? How did you answer that question? How are you doing spiritually? How do you answer that question? I've been in church long enough to know that most of the time the first answer we have is we try to measure that by, oh, I haven't read my Bible. I've read my Bible. I've prayed. I've come to church. Or we go on a very horizontal, I've attended a small group, I'm serving this ministry. Very, very few people actually measure how, they're do, how, how lively they're doing in the Christian walk based on whether they are reaching out among the lost. Reaching out to the world for those who are far away from God. That doesn't seem to be a criteria for many of us as Christians. That's the calling that we have as we're saved by God. Yet this is clear in the scripture because Jesus saw that as part of his mission. Jesus saw that as part of his life on earth. The purpose for him on earth is partly not just die for our sins, but also live a perfect life to reach out to those who are far away from God. I mentioned earlier that Luke chapter 4 is where Jesus quoted this. You just need to keep turning in the, in the book of Luke. We see Jesus reaching actively among the lost. Jesus went to the Nazareth. He, he went to Capernaum. He went to Simon's house. He went to, is in, in chapter 4, synagogues, plural, of Judea. He went to the leper. He went to teach in someone's house. And remember the story when the, when the, when the four friends lowered the, 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 the invalid into the, so break the roof and load the invalid into, into before Jesus. Jesus was actively going and reaching out and walking. One of the most favorite words described in the book of Mark of Jesus' ministry was Jesus walked. Jesus went everywhere to reach out to those who are far away from God. And then the question we ought to ask is, who are he, who was he reaching out to? In Isaiah 61, he gave us a list of people that he was reaching out to. And we saw that in the Gospels, but we also see it in this passage, identifying the type of people that Jesus was reaching out to. Here's what it says, chapter 61 in Isaiah, verse 1, it says, To bring good news to the who? The poor. He has sent me to bind up the who? The brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to who? The captives. To the opening of the prison, to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and then to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So who are the people that Jesus was reaching out to? I want to suggest to us, those are the people that, uh, that need mercy the most. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I, I shared with us Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus was identifying those who are righteous. And he called those who are righteous not just by, by believing, but actually living out acts of mercy to those who need mercy, those who need a water, those who are foreign, who need a house to stay, those who have no clothes, who are naked, to give them clothes. And Jesus, when you reach out to those who are disenfranchised, when you minister to those, serve those who need mercy, 
That's what it means for us to be a Christian. And so who are we supposed to reach out to? I want to give you an acronym that I recently learned that combining both Isaiah 61 and Matthew 25 to help you to remember. And this acronym is called PIPSI. P stands for poor, just like Isaiah 61 here. Those who are poor, maybe they are financially poor, maybe they're spiritually poor, maybe they have a substantial need for possessions and care. Those poor people, the P stands for poor. I stands for international. Matthew 25 talks about those who don't belong, those who are on the way, they have no, and, and living in SGV, we have many, myself included, was once international. And they have many needs there in a foreign place. Another P stands for prison. Those who are in what a literal prison or figuratively in prison. Those who live with the baggage of addiction. Those who feel trapped. Those who, who feel like they cannot overcome whatever uh, obstacles or whatever sins that they're, that they're facing. Challenges, temptation, they're in prison. So P-I-P-S stands for those who are sick. Those who are ill. Those who are whether sick physically, sick mentally, or sick spiritually, and why actually doesn't stand for anything. As I learned from the, from from for, uh, this acronym, why just makes this uh, this acronym a little more user friendly to be more uh, an adjective to you, so we can reference to to reaching out to Pipsy people instead of Pips people, which doesn't sound very uh, good. And so this acronym hopefully help us to remember those are the very people that Jesus was reaching out to. And we know that when we flip through the gospel, Jesus spent a whole lot of time with these pipsy people. People who are poor, people who are foreign, people who are sick, people who are in prison, were demon possessed, imprisoned by, by these evil spirits. And that's not to say that we should not reach out to rich people, we should reach out to people with status, people in the upper middle class, middle class. Because those people can be pipsy people as well. We know that. Rich people are not excluded in being imprisoned by addiction. They are not excluded by, 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 by mental illnesses. So pipsy people come across all sorts of people, all status of people. And Jesus reach out to these people. And perhaps you're wondering, well, Ben, I don't know any pipsy people. I want to challenge you. Perhaps it's not because you don't know any pipsy people. It's just you don't haven't seen them yet. You remember the story in Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. Three people walk by a guy who is deathly wounded. Three people, only one out of the three actually did something. It was not the case that the person wasn't there after the first guy walked by him. It wasn't the case that guy picked himself up and then he got hurt again. It was the same guy, same person who is deathly hurt, wounded, and to the, to the brink of death. And the reason why only one showed up to help him was because that one person, the scripture says, saw that person. So perhaps you might be thinking, I don't know any Pipsy people. I always suggest to you that maybe you don't see, you don't have anyone around. You don't notice because you haven't seen. Open your eyes. I believe all of us have Pipsy people around us. And the matter is, are we opening our eyes to see? And are we having compassion and show compassion to them? As Jesus called us to do. So the command is clear that we are to reach those who are far away. We're called to reach the Pipsy people in this world. 
That's what it means for us to be obedient to the external call of Christ. But the passage should not stop there. He says, not only are we to reach, we are to restore. We are to put back, restoring have the idea of putting it back. Something obviously the assumption is broken. That you want to put it back. You're restoring, go, renovating it, putting it back together, fixing it. So that it will rest- go back to the original way that it was supposed to be. And that's what the scripture and what God called us to do as we do this acts of mercy toward the world, be externally focused and reaching out among the lost. And not only do we reach them, but we also need to restore them to the way that God had brought them together. Going back to Isaiah chapter 61, I want you to notice how are we supposed to restore people? Look at what it says at the end of verse 1. To bring, so we're anointed with God's spirit is on us to do what? To bring good news to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of faint spirit. What are we supposed to do to restore people? I think there are two things here that we see. One is we got to do it with words. We see those words proclaim, 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 but that's not the only thing that God calls to do. God says not only do we use our words to proclaim good news to them, but he also calls to actually do something for them. That we are to bind them up if they're broken hearted. To give them something. To come alongside of them. To give them, to give them comfort. To give them console, uh, 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 consolation. I think many times in this world, a lot of times most people when they think of Christianity in today's world. They think of us as a religion of telling. We are a telling religion more than a doing religion. We are in danger in the eyes of the lost world who, who fights against God, who, who, who does not believe in God. We are, we're in danger uh, in, in being a religion to only tell them about something, but they don't see that our action actually matches what we preach. That we become so much a telling religion that they do not see the way that we live, the way that we're contributing, the way that we're acting for justice, we're acting uh, you know, for mercy in this world. But that was not the case of Christ. Again, we, I don't have the time to go through every single page of the gospel, but we know that the gospel is filled with both words of Jesus, but also deeds of Jesus. It was the case throughout the history of the tradition of Christianity that we're often known as those people who run in when there's trouble instead of those who run away. That we're not just speaking the word of truth, the gospel, the mystery of the cross, but we're doing acts of kindness, acts of mercy. Recently, I uh, got hooked on these uh, biographies and uh, of these past Christians. I've been reading all these uh, biographies and just being impacted and how those biographies were not just telling us, recording how much they say about Jesus, but what they do for Jesus and what they do in a broken world. I, I think of David Livingston, a missionary, ended slavery and brought that to different parts of the country. I'm just on this uh, Corey Tamboon um, biography. A Dutch woman and her family saved many, many of those Jews who were persecuted by, the, by Nazi Germany. 
I remember George Mueller barely having enough food on his own table for his family, saw orphans and decided to open his house. The breakfast club for 30 orphans eventually ended up being uh, growing up to five large full houses of 10,000 children being cared for. See, Jesus never intended us to restore people with just words, but it is words and deeds. And this is perhaps what we need to remember, that words and deeds are both equally necessary. Think of a plane, the two, the two, the two wings of a, of a plane. Which one would you rather have, the left one or the right one? And if you're sitting on that plane, your answer will always be, I want both of those. And the same thing is true with words and deeds because Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 4 gave us a summary statement in Matthew in illustrating what Jesus had done by summarizing and saying this. He went through all Galilee. Here's the reaching part. Here's the restoring part. How did he restore? By teaching in their synagogues, by proclaiming using words, the gospel of the kingdom. And notice what it says, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Both words and deeds are equally necessary. I can guarantee that many of you can quote verses of, of proclamation of the gospel. But how many verses do we see as God calls us to act upon justice, to act upon mercy? I would just want to go through a few with us. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. God here says this, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? And to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God. James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let me go to First John chapter 3 verse 16 and 18. Here we see the balance of both words and deeds. If anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I love the NIV translation. Let us not love with words or tongue only, but also in deed and in truth. So words and deeds are both equally necessary, but not only necessary, they're equally interdependent. That words are supposed to help with our deeds, and deeds are supposed to help with our words. I think many times when we think of words and deeds, as far as evangelism is concerned, we're thinking that we need to do a bunch of deeds so that we can get to the point to preach the gospel to those people. So let's have some program so that we can, we can help these people so that we can get a list of people and then preach at them afterwards. While, as I, as I said earlier, both are equally necessary, the, they're equally as interdependent, meaning that the words are meant to help the deeds, and the deeds are meant to help the word. I am a living testimony of how believers lift out the words of God and preach the word of God and also do the deeds of mercy. When my parents first came to the United States when they were in San Diego, they, they didn't know a lot of people. They were not religious but by the sovereignty of God, somehow they were pointed to this church. They didn't really care about going to church, but they heard that these people are good people. So they showed up at church late. And then out come one of the deacons, which we found out later on, and showed genuine care to my parents. 
they show genuine care not because that there are some newcomers that they are looking for opportunity just to preach the gospel of them because we know that because subsequent weeks they continue to visit our homes not just to come and every time bring the bible and share the, the four spiritual law with us they come ready to help us they drive us to pick up furniture they drive my parents to go get their social security card. They help my parents to know how to navigate through finding a job. They literally come and help us for weeks on. They do deeds of mercy to my parents to, to break down their, their mentality toward Christians is that those people only do good things so that they can preach at us. In fact, my parents for a long time did not believe that there are good people in the world. But yet the church of Jesus Christ demonstrated, did the deed of, deeds of mercy for them, for them to see that this, this can actually be true. And the way, the reason why it's true is because God lives in these people's lives. And along the way, these people love my parents so much that they did not only just do the good things for them, to, to care for their well-being, being a new immigrant in a, in a, in a, a foreign country. They also realize that the greatest need of my parents is not just to be fed, to find a job, to provide for the kids, me and my sister, but that their ultimate need is to have Jesus in their lives. Which leads to the third thing is that while words and deeds are equally necessary, they're equally interdependent. Words, the ministry of the word, not higher, not, not better, but it does address the most fundamental, the most radical need that we all have. See, all the mysteries that we've experienced in this life, all the brokenness, all the sorrow and trials that we experience in this life is a result of sin. I like how Tim Keller described the word radical. He explains it by saying that the, the, the basic understanding of the word radical is not what we normally think of. Radical means extreme. Really, the word and the most fundamental way is actually the, means the root of something. And so he said the most radical need that you and I have, all people have in this world, is that radical need of knowing that we are alienated from Jesus. That we are rebellious. We are that prodigal son who ran away and took our stuff and left the father. And subsequently, all the things that we have after, all the troubles that we have after that, is a result of that rebellion against God. And so the only way for us to reunite with God is to hear that message of grace, the message of the gospel, the good news about what Jesus had done on the cross. And that is why the word, the ministry of the word addresses the, most, the ultimate need that we have. Which is the same reason why if you go to Luke chapter 4, where I mentioned earlier how Jesus quoted this verse in the beginning of his ministry. But he did a very unique and surprising thing when he quoted this where he says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, which usually hold the scroll of scripture for people to read, and sat down. And I want you to notice the reaction of the people. All the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. If you remember and go back to Isaiah 61, Jesus was quoting and quoting until he hit verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What he missed out on was this part. And the day of vengeance of our God. You know why Jesus purposely stopped there and closed the book? It's because Jesus is used preaching 
doing the word, uh, the ministry of the word, to announce to those who are in attendance that I am this gospel that I'm preaching. I'm the embodiment of this word that will bring life to you. And the reason why he closed the book is because there is still opportunity. The vengeance of God is coming, but there is still time for you to be entered into the kingdom of God. And so while Jesus was saying the ministry of the word is present, is at work, I'm doing it right now with you. He never used that as an excuse for not doing the acts of mercy to restore people. He continued to feed people. He continued to heal people. He continued to cast out demons. He continued to give uh, meet the very uh, real needs that people have. That was never an excuse for Jesus not to do the acts of mercy, the deeds of mercy. And so the, the passage tells us that we ought to reach, we need to restore, and we do that by doing acts of mercy, meeting the needs of the others, and all the while preaching the gospel. Which leads to the third component of our external calling, and it has to do with reproducing. Reproducing, we are to multiply those who have been reached, those who have been restored, and, and build in them opportunities and encourage and equip them so that they can do the same for others. That's our job to do, to carry out the external call was never just to reach, to restore, and that's it. We are called to reach, to restore, and to reproduce in those whom we help so that they can do the same thing for the rest of the world who are lost, who are far away from God. Look at Isaiah chapter 61, going down to verse, the end of verse 3. Here's the word that summarized for us the purpose that they, that these people have been helped and reached and restored. So the, the reason, the purpose, what? That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That primarily is for the glory of, of God that we help and reach these people. But secondarily, look at verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many, many generations. I want you to put your finger on the word they. Do you know who are the they people that, that this passage was referring to? The they that we're referring to are the people who have been helped. Those people who have been brought good news. Those people who have been brokenhearted and be binded. Those people who are in prison have been set free. Those people who are mourning, now they have a new spirit, a, a spirit of praise. It was the people who were reached and the people who have been restored by the gospel, by, uh, by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was they who are to go to build up the ruins of the world. They are to raise up the devastation of the world. They are to repair the ruins today. They are to repair devastation on many, many generations to come. I believe that job is not done. I think in this COVID season, we know ruins continue to exist. Devastation continue to be present in our world. And so God is calling us to do, do this external call to both reach, to restore, and to reproduce people to go and to rebuild the ruins of this world. We continue to live in a broken, hopeless world. Broken physically, broken emotionally, broken spiritually. And those who have been restored by Christ have the responsibility and the calling to go and rebuild. 
1.8 million. What do you think? What, what, what does it remind you of? What does this number tell you about? 1.8 million people. 1.8 million. This is the number of people living in St. Gabriel Valley. St. Gabriel Valley uh, is consistent of 31 cities, 400 square miles. 1.8 million people of all ethnicities. According to data, approximately 20% of this population, 1.8 million, 400,000 of them are Christians, loosely counting. 400,000 people living in SGV are Christians. That means that there are 1.4, roughly 1.4 million people who lives in San Gabriel Valley in all 31 of this city who are living in ruin, who are living in devastation, who are living in prison life. There are 1.4 million Pipsy people living among us, around us, to the places we go to when we get to use, to, when we used to go to. People who we spend time with, people who come across, 1.4 million people with broken hearts, hopeless dream. And God said this, what are we as a church going to do about that? What are we as a church going to do the reaching and the restoring? I know that the only way for us to go 400,000 people to reach 1.4 is not just to count on a few people. It will require all 400,000 of us who claim to be the followers of Jesus, believers of God, to go and reach, to go and restore. It will take every one of us, young and old, mature, immature, in regards of age, skin color. It will take all of us to do that. And you know what's the amazing thing is? As I, as, I, as I continue to serve in the church and I continue to serve in Christian ministry, what I realize is that those people who, who used to be abused tend to be the best one who reach out to those who are, who are being abused. Because they've been rescued, they've been restored by the grace of God, even through those situations that they now know those who are being abused, what they're going through, and they have a way of bringing in the gospel to restore those people unlike any one of us can. You know what? I find those who are immigrants are so good at reaching out to immigrant families. Like many of our Chinese congregations, like uh, for my parents, every time I, when I hear my parents reaching out to immigrant families, there's this magic touch of them that they know how to reach out and how to restore them, help them to see Christ, the need of Christ, and do acts of mercy that they need. They instinctually know because why? Because they've walked through that period of darkness. They have struggled through the same thing or if not similar things. So here's my challenge for you and challenge for me. It's that we are not to waste the pain and the sorrow, the trials, the difficulties of life that God had ordained in your life and my life. God did not mean for those things to be wasteful. God wants to use every pain, every struggles that you've gone through and be restored by his gospel so that now you can do the same for those who are going through it right now. You've been in a ditch and you've been rescued by God. God wants to use you to bring back to those who are now still in the ditch. 
And there will be no one else who's better for that job than you because you've been there. Second Corinthians chapter 1 says this, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. But there's a catch to that. So that, yes, praise God for comforting and praise God for his mercy in your life and my life. But there is an, an external movement of that comfort. What does it say? So that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We have been receiving the mercy of God. So let's be minister of mercy to others. We have received the comfort from God. Let's be comfort for others. Do not waste what God has has ordained in your life. Though it might be painful, God has a purpose for it. See, our lives are never meant to be a cul-de-sac of God's grace and mercy. He never intended to save us to just keep the grace and mercy in our own lives. In fact, I would say that he did not keep you on earth after you accepted Christ just for living out this poor imitation of a good life here on earth. He has far greater life for you in the future. But he left you and I here so that we can proclaim the words of the gospel and to be the handsome feet and to be a demonstration of his gospel to those who are in desperate need of his mercy. Wells Crowther was a college student Went to college at Boston College, played lacrosse. He was, uh, ever since he was six years old, he's always hold on to this red handkerchief. His father gave him a white one and a red one. The white one, he said, is for show. The red one is for work. Even as he's growing up, wherever he finds a job, wherever he goes, even playing lacrosse, he will put that red bandana across his head in remembering that his life was called for something more. He carried that with him on September 11, 2001 when he was working at the South Tower of the World Trade Center up in 107th floor as an equity trader. He brought it with him that day and, and as all of us know, that was the unfortunate day where a plane crashed into the World Trade Center, knocking down the building Severing, severely causing the building to crumble and eventually fall. At that time, Wells was working in his 107th floor. The floors are crumbling below him. He ran down. Along the way, he saw a lady named Lynn. Lynn was blown back by the explosion. By the time she got, she was conscious, she realized the, the melee that was going on. These body parts were all over the place. It was still dusty. And she realized that she was in luck, that she's not dead yet. But she, but she also knew that a slight move, the whole floor will be crumbled down. The whole building could crumble down. But a lot out of the corner of his eyes, well showed up in, in, among the mist of, of, of dirt and dust. Wells brought her, carried her down uh, 10 flights of stairs 
hand her over to the, the fire, firefighters to, to eventually bring her down to safety. But Wells did not continue with them. Wells went back up. And as he went back up, he saw another group of people. People were struggling, people were walking, and started yelling at people, if you can walk, stand up and walk, I'll lead you to where the, the, the firefighters are. If you, you are able, carry, help the people who, who, can, who cannot walk on their own. And again, he went back down 10 flights of stairs with all these people, rescuing them, sending them to the firefighter. Again, he did not stay down, he went back up. And of course, he never made it out alive. It was six months later that his body was found among many uniformed firefighters. It was never his intention, perhaps, to make it out. Yet, he sacrificed his life to do these acts of mercy. One lady later on in an interview said that people can live 100 years and have not the compassion of Wells. Lynn today still keep a letter, uh, a picture of him, of Wells on her desk, reminding herself how she was a result of someone else sacrificing compassion. Wells is gone, but his acts of mercy never left. Boston College hosts an annual 5K run in raising awareness and money to honor Wells' legacy. ESPN reporter Tom Rinaldi wrote a book surprisingly called the red bandana to remember the courage and the mercy this young man had for others by giving up his life for others. It all starts with one person. One person committing to do one act of mercy, to live one day for God, to make one decision in one situation. It all starts with one person one of you, one of me. But as we continue to do that one again and again, the church unites as the body, as the one body of Christ for the one mission of God to bring the mercy and hope in this world, broken, hopeless world. Let me ask you a question today as we end. What is that one act of mercy that you need to do this week for that one person that will make a difference in that person's life? Whatever that one thing is, do another after that. Plus one become another, become another, become another, because soon that one become many. And that many has the power to really change the world. And that is the call of being a believer in Christ. Not just some slogan that we all want the good for the world, but Jesus intends to reach to restore the world that's why he came to die and model for us how to do that. So that we can be that hands and feet for him in this world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we're a recipient of great mercy. We are not worthy. And yet you reach down on earth in flesh and blood. You give us a hope when we have no hope. You send people into our lives to restore our brokenness 
to show for us in tangible way that Jesus, you love us. God, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will not settle in living in that 2D Christian life. God, fill us with your purpose to, to this world that who, is, who will continue to be in ruin, continue to be devastated by all sorts of, uh, of, 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 of the effects of sin. God, move us out. Wake us up. God, help us not to settle for mediocrity, not to settle for security or comfort. And as long as we live in this world, God, help us to be obedient each day to each person, to each act, to each situation. Oh God, I pray when 400,000 of your people do it in SGV, I dream of the, the, the effect, the result of that. And not just in SGV, but to the ends of the world heard our three billion people who have yet to know you. God, awake our soul. Help us to face the task that's unfinished before us. Get glory in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.